TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. John Pilger on depleted uranium in Ukraine. First the UK, now the Biden administration, are planning on sending depleted uranium tank shells to Ukraine. When the UK Ministry of Defense, MOD, made the announcement on March 20 of this year, Peace groups and investigative reporters raised the alarm. Toxic and radioactive uranium dust appears when these DU shells are detonated. They pose a danger to the health of anyone who inhales it, and they contaminate the soil and water. The investigative reporter and documentary filmmaker John Pilger remembers the devastating effects the DU shells had when they were used in Iraq. Soldiers burned alive in their tanks when these new armor-piercing DU shells hit them. The British Forces Broadcasting Service has a description for their military audience. DU, as it's known, is a byproduct of nuclear enrichment, the process that's used to make nuclear fuel and nuclear weapons. It's used to make tank shells because it's so hard. At the same speed, depleted uranium rounds are up to 20% more effective than older tungsten ones. Conventional tungsten ammunition deforms when it hits metal, making it progressively blunter. Depleted uranium rounds, on the other hand, sharpen as they travel through, giving them greater punch. As it bores through, the DU penetrator also pushes in the tank's own armour. The crew inside then face not just a high-velocity projectile, but also fragments of their own vehicle, all ricocheting around their confined space at deadly speed. To make things worse, depleted uranium ignites when it's exposed to oxygen, creating fire and potentially cooking off ammunition and fuel inside the tank. For the crew, the effects can be catastrophic. Depleted uranium rounds were first used during the Gulf War by both British and American forces. In the years that followed, there's been a lot of controversy, with claims their use causes long-term health damage and contaminates the environment. Both the UK MOD and the US Department of Defence dispute that though, claiming independent scientific research has shown there to be no link between depleted uranium and human cancer. Simon Newton, Forces News. That's from the British Forces Broadcasting Service. In conversation with John Pilger is Phil Miller, chief reporter for Declassified UK. Miller is reporting on the growing number of cases in European courts brought by soldiers who were sickened after serving in Iraq or NATO wars in the former Yugoslavia. On June 13, 2023, the Wall Street Journal broke the news that the Biden administration is planning to equip the Abrams tanks they are sending to Ukraine with depleted uranium shells. New reports suggest the U.S. could be gearing up to provide Kyiv with depleted uranium. DU tank ammunition. Unnamed U.S. officials told the Wall Street Journal on Monday that Washington is set to send DU ammunition to Ukraine, which would be fired from U.S.-provided Abrams tanks. There are no significant hurdles to the U.S. sending DU ammunition, a senior administration official told the publication. But the move has nonetheless angered Russian President Vladimir Putin, who suggested there was a nuclear element to the move. That's the Wall Street Journal. Now it remains to be seen if there is resistance to this decision in the U.S. 
or at least curiosity about the news, as shown by John Pilcher and Phil Miller on this Consortium News video. Elizabeth Voss is hosting. She's joined by Joe Loria, editor of Consortium News. The date was May 11, 2023. Welcome to CN Live, Season 5, Episode 7. Depleted uranium shells have been sent to Ukraine, as confirmed by UK Armed Forces Minister James Heapy last week. Britain announced last month that it would send the munitions for use with Challenger 2 tanks in Ukraine, a move that immediately escalated nuclear tensions with Russia, with Russian President Vladimir Putin threatening to place tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus just days later. The UK move comes amid indications that Kiev is increasingly desperate, to the point of being willing to risk scorching the earth it is fighting for. Over the last few months, documents emerging as part of the Pentagon leak have shown Ukrainian forces are faring far worse than previously reported by corporate media. Britain's decision to send depleted uranium rounds to Ukraine represents more than a dangerous escalation in the West's proxy war with the nuclear armed power. It's an example of Ukraine's willingness to target the ethnic Russian population in eastern Ukraine and poison the land that is attempting to retain but according to the Pentagon leaks, knows it won't be able to. Depleted uranium will have effects not only on Russian fighters and possibly Ukrainian soldiers too, but also on the civilian population for years to come. The US and British corporate media appear to dismiss concerns of Russian nuclear escalation in response to the use of depleted uranium rounds. And the official line in the West is that such weapons represent a low environmental risk. However, there are compelling reasons to question the official stance. Depleted uranium rounds were used by U.S. forces in both Iraq wars, as well as the Balkans in the 1990s. Depleted uranium munitions are heavier than lead and are typically used to pierce the armor of tanks. On impact, the metal shears, burns, and vaporizes, producing radioactive dust. A 1999 report by The Guardian related the sentiments of scientists speaking in regards to Kosovo with depleted uranium, saying, quote, one single particle of depleted uranium lodged in a lymph node can devastate the entire immune system. In John Pilger's film documenting Iraq after the first war, paying the price, killing the children of Iraq, he spoke with doctors in Basra where they reported a tenfold increase in cancer deaths. Pilcher also spoke with an Iraqi pediatrician who described an influx of congenital deformities never seen before the war. In the case of the second Iraq war, the most striking reported effects of depleted uranium and other toxic substances was seen in Fallujah, where U.S. forces bombed mercilessly in 2004. The rise in birth defects in Iraq has been called catastrophic, and The Guardian went so far as to publish a piece in 2014 that accused the World Health Organization of covering up the, quote, nuclear nightmare left behind in Fallujah by the U.S. and U.K. Others have compared the city's health crisis with, with that following the U.S. nuclear attack in Hiroshima. Is this the future faced by generations of ethnic Russians in Ukraine? With Ukraine set to lose, if slowly, on the battlefield, what is to be gained by taking out a few more Russian tanks if it permanently renders the land a danger to its inhabitants, permeated with toxic dust particles of radioactive heavy metal? How can this decision be viewed as anything but a spiteful admission that the land is being lost and that salting it is a final act of malice against ethnic Russians in Donbass? 
To discuss this with us tonight, we're joined by John Pilger in Australia. John is an eminent journalist and documentary filmmaker who has twice won Britain's highest award for journalism and has been International Reporter of the Year, News Reporter of the Year, and Descriptive Writer of the Year. He's made 61 documentary films and has won an Emmy, a BAFTA, and the Royal Television Society Prize. His Cambodia Year Zero is named as one of the 10 most important films of the 20th century. And we're also joined by Phil Miller in London. Phil is a declassified UK's chief reporter and the author of Keeney Meeny, the British mercenaries who got away with war crimes. He has been covering the UK decision to send depleted uranium to Ukraine and recently published an article covering court cases that linked depleted uranium exposure to service members in Europe who later developed cancer. Thank you both so much for joining us. Very welcome. John, I'd like to start with you. Can you just tell us uh, what you experienced in Iraq firsthand in documenting the effects of the Gulf War on civilians in Iraq? In southern Iraq, where I was right at the end of the first Gulf War, you may remember the, the terrible road of death. Which the Iraqi army tried to escape the wrath of the US in Kuwait. And miles and miles of vehicles of fleeing Iraqi uh, military personnel were, were blown to bits. But most of the ammunition, most of the ordnance used was depleted uranium. And you could tell that from I inspected the one end of the, this convoy of death and the holes in the side of armored personnel carriers were those that had been caused by the shells of depleted uranium. I'd seen it elsewhere. Now, right across southern Iraq, depleted uranium was used. And it was used in a way that it had to be there for years and years in the future. Southern Iraq, particularly at that time of the year, is a place of the most terrible sandstorms. The sand blows up, it blows into your eyes, your nose, your throat. Everyone is, is covered with it. People talk about it. It's part of life there, but it's a terrible part of life. And of course, it carries all the toxics of, of warfare and particularly of depleted uranium. One of the doctors referred to it as the seeds of death, you can understand why. In the teaching hospital, Sadra Teaching Hospital in Basra, the scene was, well, it was apocalyptic. Mostly children had been affected because children not only play in these toxic sandstorms, they play on the wreckage of war and they can pick this up. When you consider, give you an idea, one of the doctors described it, and I think accurately, as a form of nuclear warfare. An A-10 warhog fires 4,500 grams of depleted uranium in one shot. The United States used 300 tons of depleted uranium in southern Iraq. The Warhog was the main instrument of delivering this uh, depleted uranium. Children all had something they had never seen before, had hardly seen before, and that is uh, neuroblastoma, uh, a particular cancer that is so rare that in most societies it's 
it's always a surprise, as one of the doctors said, to see it. But the pediatrician in charge of wards of children, all with uh, neuroblastoma, had a book, a color album of all the children that she treated. I mean, it was quite clear. This, this of course, is, is what the researchers call anecdotal evidence. I would call it journalistic evidence, eyewitness evidence. This is, this is the kind of apocalyptic result of that war that was never really reported widely and has been largely forgotten since then. And the reason it's been forgotten, if I may just add a little more to my answer, Elizabeth, the role of the World Health Organization, the World Health Organization, in fact, when I was there in 1999, 2000, 2001, the World Health Organization completed a report on depleted uranium by 2001, refused to release it, censored a lot of it. I interviewed uh, Carl Sikora, who was then the British oncologist who was in charge of the WHO's cancer program. And he had printed quite a bit of the damning bits of this report in Lancet, uh, the medical magazine, and was ordered by the World Health Organization to take it out. This has gone on right through to the end of the, what I would call the main war, that is 2003, or the initial parts of the main war, when the WHO issued a preliminary report and then following Fallujah, another report, but the, all these reports had been doctored. So depleted uranium really the effects of it in southern Iraq, where the leading doctor in the Sadra hospital said, estimated it would affect 48% of the population of southern Iraq, is really like a Chernobyl. Wow. And, and that debate continues. I mean, to, to this day, you know, upon this news that the UK was sending depleted uranium over to Ukraine, you still have people in the West saying, no, it's basically harmless. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Well, the, then you must remember when I first saw it, the so-called sanctions were in place. These were the most, as you'll remember, the most stringent, it's not sanctions, a blockade really, of almost everything against Iraq that weakened Iraq and prepared it to be invaded in 2003. And Carl Sikora, the oncologist I'd mentioned, uh, he uh, wrote in the, the British Medical Journal, quote, requested radiotherapy equipment, chemotherapy drugs, and analgesics are consistently blocked by United States and British advisors to the Iraq Sanctions Committee. We were specifically told by the WHO not to talk about the whole Iraq business. The WHO is not an organization that likes to be involved in politics. It's a rather ironic statement at the end. But that blockade was stopping, was really, was crippling a country. It couldn't. That's why the two UN humanitarian coordinators, Dennis Halliday and Hans von Sponick, Resigned, Halliday called it uh, a genocide. But the UN, in effect, 
the United States and Britain operated this medieval siege against Iraq. So by the time 2003 came around and the Bush and Blair um, invasion force turned up, Iraq was on its knees. Do you have any comment on the current lack of real outrage, even from independent journalism? I mean, there's not, I mean, we have Phil here, but there's not a lot of voices speaking out about this very, you know, stridently, like I would imagine, given the impact of this substance. Do you think that's because people are scared to talk about it in the face of, of the controversy scientifically? I don't talk about a lot of things. <laughs> and that's on the well, list. I'm talking about the independent media even. I'm not even talking that's about that's, that's on the list. I mean, I sometimes think that those of us doing the work I hope we're doing will one day give up asking why the media do certain things. They are part of the problem and they are the main instrument of propaganda now. I say that not rhetorically, having come from a lifetime in the mainstream media, they are the instrument of propaganda. All spaces of dissent, uh, of sustained factual reporting on a, an issue such as this are closed. That's really the answer to your question, Elizabeth, but also it comes down to why why are the universities so quiet about this? You know, so many of the big universities, I think I know the ones, but I won't name them because I'm not sure, particularly in the United States, were involved in refining depleted uranium. It's a very effective ordinance. It works in tank battles. It works. It can subdue a major force very effectively. And here we have Ben Wallace, the defense minister in Britain, licensing depleted uranium to go to Ukraine. That means that we're going to have another Iraq in Ukraine. Phil, I want to turn to you in your article that you published recently with Declassified UK, where you described Italian courts finding and basically validating this link between exposure to DU and cancer suffered by service members who were exposed in Kosovo. Can you walk us through that recent piece and what it means for this discussion? Yes, uh, thanks, Elizabeth. So I've been looking at both the legal reaction to, to this issue and also the, the kind of scientific debate, which, which John touched on. And it's it's interesting that um, you know even though among some of the scientific papers there's this degree of ambiguity because of the difficulties of doing long-term studies in war zones, in the legal sphere there are hundreds of court judgments um, in Europe, mainly in Italy, but also um, we found one in France and one in England, where judges have awarded uh, compensation to soldiers or soldiers' families after they've passed away because of these rare cancers that, that have developed after their exposure to depleted uranium ammunition. This is soldiers who were either handling the ammunition themselves or they were being deployed to areas that had just been strafed by NATO, by the US in, in Kosovo in particular. So I think this is, is really interesting. And also it kind of, you know, one of the reactions I've had to these stories is, well, who cares if some Russian soldiers get exposed to depleted uranium in their tanks. I mean, this shows that it's, you know, Ukrainian service personnel as well, who are liable to um, some of the risks involved in this. Uh, there's obviously, of course, friendly fire as well, which which has happened in, in these tank battles. 
um, in other conflicts. And then, of course, the civilian population living in those areas, either when the shells miss their targets and get buried in the ground, potentially by water sources, or just the, the wrecks of tanks not being cleared away and, and um, you know, children playing on them. And the UK has said that they don't feel any moral obligation to help clear up the depleted uranium shells that it sent to Ukraine after the conflict, or to even publish their firing locations. And that's different to uh, second Iraq war. The MOD did publish the firing locations and they did say they had a moral obligation to help clean up. Ultimately, they didn't give much aid towards that cleanup. But, um, you know, I think that the position is, has hardened even more and they, they seem to think that they can get away with it. And, you know, going back to 2003, it did feel like there was a bit more pushback from the scientific community. The Royal Society had done some research into the risks of depleted uranium that the MOD and the Pentagon tried to cite as, um, you know, saying it was low risk. And the, the Royal Society scientist behind that research actually came out and said to the Guardian, you know, they're, they're misquoting the, the research. I, I, I've said there should be a lot of caution involved uh, and we need a long term study to find out what's going on. What's interesting is, is fast forward to this year when the UK announced it was going to send the depleted uranium to Ukraine. They referred to this same scientific research. They said, you know, the Royal Society said it's fine. And I, I contacted the Royal Society and said, when did you last do research on this? And they said, well, we haven't updated our research since 2002 or 2003. It's, you know, our position is the same now as it was then. Mm. Um, but, you know, th the rest of the media didn't didn't pick up on that. So um, I think there are lots of questions that should be being being asked about this. And, and you know, we have perhaps the scientific research, the long-term studies, you know, there are difficulties around doing those, particularly in places like Iraq that are still very unstable. But if you just look at the court judgments, um, and I'm just talking about courts in, in NATO states, you know, in, in Italy, in France, in, in England. I mean, there are other, there's other litigation going on, I think, in Serbia as well, regarding the, the bombardment of, of Belgrade as well, where lawyers are trying to build on the Italian cases. And I think even in Kosovo, there are some KLA veterans who you know, fought on the side of NATO, in particular towns that were heavily bombarded that have expressed concerns about this. So, you know, that's without even getting into to that side of it. You know, obviously anything in the Serbian courts is is liable to being dismissed as as some kind of Russian propaganda sort of thing. So I, I just looked at the, you know, Italian courts, French courts, English courts, these are all NATO member states to see what what those judges were saying. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I, I know that you've also reported on the fact that there's no confirmation that Russia has used depleted uranium itself in the war in Ukraine, although it does possess a stockpile of those types of munitions. You've written that James T.P. told Parliament that the Ministry of Defense is unaware of any credible open source reports of Russia using depleted uranium in Ukraine. Can you just tell us a little bit about that as well? Because one of the things that I saw a lot in response to the article we published about this subject was people basically saying, well, Russia's using it, Russia's using it. And you know, your uh, reporting indicates that may not be the case. Yeah, so this was another thing, you know, the reaction to the first story was there was a Russian news agency article from, I think, 2018 saying that they've upgraded some of their tanks to fire depleted uranium. So lots of people were sharing this on, on social media in response to our story. An MP asked a question in Parliament saying, you know, does the MOD have any, um, you know, has Russia used depleted uranium? Uh, and I expected them to say yes. And surprisingly, that the answer was, you know, we don't have any open source information to say they have done. And something we've seen throughout this conflict is the MOD has been very 
quick to declassify any intelligence it receives about Russia, um, you know, using white phosphorus or, or anything that's perceived as kind of, you know, something that it can call out Russia on. So the fact that they weren't able to produce any, any instances of Russia actually firing the depleted uranium that it has in its arsenal, again, was, was, was very significant and didn't really get much reaction beyond, beyond our, our article, unfortunately. Yeah, and, and you bring up white phosphorus. I think that's important as well. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Is there evidence that Russia has used white phosphorus? Because I think that's controversial as well, as far as I'm aware. This recent case in, in Bakhmut of what looks like white phosphorus being fired, uh, and Ben Wallace gave a statement to Parliament today where he he did say, you know, using white phosphorus in civilian areas is is illegal. But some of our other research at Declassified has been looking at how Britain fires uh, white phosphorus in Kenya where it has a, a military base and it has um, access to large parts of the Kenyan countryside. And it says that's legal because it's um, it's not being fired in a, in a populated area. But I mean, I've been to those areas. I've spoken to the Samburu tribe and the, and the herders who who frequent that area. And it's, um, you know, it's it's a nomadic area. There's no fence around this firing range. So people are just wandering through. And there are real concerns there about, you know, the health consequences of that. Um, they, they've also fired faulty ammunition that hasn't exploded. And then herders have subsequently picked it up or stepped on it. And, and there have been huge numbers of, of limbs being lost and people even being killed from that going up as recently as I think 2015. Again, I mean, there, there are so many double standards here. The UK doesn't really seem to be interested in the real risk of, of using these these munitions. John, did you want to jump in? It's interesting that the only time I think the US and therefore the UK has said that they have actually used depleted uranium was when the Dutch government extraordinarily got from the United States, the Defense Department, the coordinates of the use of depleted uranium in in Iraq, and it did so under pressure from the uh, Dutch anti-war group, PAX, which had brought in a, a freedom of information thing. Now, what those coordinates showed was that certainly the US had used it widely all over southern and central Iraq. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know the exact kind of sequence of events as to how, how the firing locations came to be published. Um, I think the US were much more reluctant than the UK to release where they had fired their munitions. And, and of course, the US had fired far, far more. So um, we do have a data set of where the UK fired them in Basra in 2003. But I, I don't think we have the whole picture and certainly not the US side of it. You know, the UK is is really kind of a, an outlier here in its in its use of the weapon. I mean, together with, with the US, I think on this issue, it's probably in the UK, it's had the most kind of backlash. There's been almost uniform support towards the UK government's policy on Ukraine. And this is probably one of the first issues that's made people start to think, you know, whose interests will be really serving here. And if this is going to spread toxic metals across Ukraine, you know, are we really do we really have Ukraine's best interests at heart here? So I think it started to get people to think a little bit. Uh, and then we've had the Pentagon Papers as well, which which highlighted more about British troops being on the ground and, you know, the near miss, the spy planes over the Black Sea and how how close some of those near misses have been. So maybe, you know, and the war's been going on for over a year now. People might be willing to start thinking a bit more about 
whether really they're being given the full picture and whether this really has to can only end in one way or whether a peaceful solution is, is possible. That was a conversation about depleted uranium munitions that many want to see banned under international law. You can find the full video on the Consortium News website or on YouTube under the title DU in Ukraine, John Pilger and Phil Miller. Thanks to Elizabeth Voss, host of CN Live, and Joe Loria, editor of Consortium News. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. My name is Maria Geleiden. Thank you for listening.